Father, thank you so much for another morning that we get to gather. Lord, thank you for bringing me and Alexandra here safely. I ask, Father, that as we come to your word, we would be students. Lord, would your spirit please be at work? Would you help direct our eyes to Christ? Would we place our trust in him even more? Father, would you be glorified and pleased with this morning? I pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have not already, you can please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. It's John chapter 8. We're going to be jumping right into the middle of John 8, beginning in verse 21. And that may seem a little bit odd, so I'll explain. I've uh, been in John's gospel a lot recently, and this passage has been on my mind. Uh, I love this passage. I'm excited to preach it to you. And because this is a one-off, it really didn't matter anywhere we went because it would have been new for you guys. So John chapter 8, beginning in verse 21, we're going to read through verse 30. What we're going to see here is simple. We're going to see the example and the teaching of Jesus. To be more specific, we are going to see one, Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leaders, two, Jesus' teaching about his identity, and three, Jesus' perfection as the Son of God. So one, Jesus' interaction, two, Jesus' teaching, and three, Jesus' perfection. So to begin, we're going to read the passage in full, and then we will get ourselves situated with the context. Beginning in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So we're jumping right into the middle of John 8, and you'll notice in verse 21, this phrase, he said to them again. You notice something similar in verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, what we're going to see this morning, we're jumping into another instance of this continued back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and the conversation by this point is pretty heated. Back in John 7, a chapter previous, the Jews were seeking to arrest Jesus. Even back in chapter 5, they had plans to kill him. Throughout Jesus' ministry so far, he's been teaching, he's been preaching, healing, gathering disciples to himself. And the Jewish leaders, meaning the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes, are not happy. They're jealous when they see all this happening. They're filled with anger whenever they try to confront Jesus because they're really no match. So to put it simply, where we're jumping into this morning is this conversation. Jesus and the Jewish leaders are at it again. And each time they come together, the temperature is being turned up. 
You could think of it like a battle. I'm sure the Jewish leaders thought of it that way, but it was really one-sided. And it's in these first couple verses, 21 through 24, that we're gonna spend some time thinking about Jesus' interaction with these antagonistic Jewish leaders. And perhaps even when we first read the passage, kind of Jesus' bold words, his frankness with the Jewish leaders might have stuck out to you. I am from above, you are from below. You will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is not holding back. And it certainly catches our attention. I think uh, the words that Jesus uses certainly goes against Minnesota nice, right? We don't usually talk to people like this. It's not very culturally appropriate. And I think it can be difficult for us to read a passage like this and figure out how does this apply to me? Should I speak like this? Is this only not sinful because it's Jesus? And if you're like me, you might struggle with being nice. Struggle with being nice. What do I mean by that? If you struggle with being nice, just not wanting to rock the boat or unnecessarily offend someone, kind of always being hyper-careful. And I think it's a legitimate concern that many of us have as Christians, how do I faithfully share the truth of God's word without unnecessarily offending somebody? But if we're not careful, we may just be allowing our own fear of being disliked lead us to be quiet. We should not be unnecessarily offensive, but the gospel message itself is offensive. Even if we look again at verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If we struggle with the bluntness of Jesus' speech, maybe it might have more to do with our own fears of being disliked or being thought of as mean or narrow. If we look at verse 28 and 29, we know that Jesus is not sinning, but he's pleasing the Father. He speaks just as he's been taught. And I know that you guys have been going through the minor prophets, and you see that the prophets' job, what they had to say to the people, I don't know how many of you guys after reading the prophets want that job. There's lots of glorious things about hope and uh, restoration and a future redemption. And you also have Malachi telling the priests that their sacrifices are terrible. It's like dung in God's sight. Uh, And so they were supposed to speak just as God taught them. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And they often had to use really frank, bold speech. And we see Jesus doing it here in John 8. I want to share a a humorous story from the life of Walter Martin, if you've heard of him. He was an expert on the cults in the 60s and the 70s. He has a book, perhaps you've read it or seen it, it's pretty big, it's called The Kingdom of the Cults. So what he would do is he would go to the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons headquarters, he'd get their information and he compiled it into a book to help us as Christians know how to evangelize and better respond to people who are in the cults. And people loved his work, but sometimes his upfront speech and his boldness made people uncomfortable. And the perfect example he shares in a sermon uh, was when he was on a Christian TV show being interviewed. And so the story goes a little bit like this. He's being interviewed by two hosts, and one of them says, nobody can speak against the work that you've done in the kingdom of the cults. We praise and we thank the Lord for that. However, I do have a constructive criticism to make. You don't show enough love. You've really got to love these people. Martin responds, I've been doing this for 34 years, and you are telling me that I don't love these people? What have you done? He says, I love Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, people in the cults. I'm fighting for their lives, for their souls. He says, love isn't sticky, syrupy, gooey stuff that just happens. It's not just a smile on your face. 
He says, in the name of God, people are dying in their sins. You've got to tell them more than just Jesus loves them. Jesus is going to judge them. If they won't receive love, they will receive judgment. So the TV auditorium studio goes kind of quiet and the host tries to backpedal and she says, I don't want to get into controversy, but he says, uh, Martin says this, give me 30 seconds and I want you to listen to the voice of incarnate love. Who was the most loving person who ever lived? Jesus. So then he starts to quote scripture from Jesus, including our passage. He says, you generation of slimy snakes, who warned you to flee from the damnation of hell? Whitewashed tombs on the outside, inside filled with rotting corpses. You children of the devil, the lusts of your father you will do. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and he did not abide in the truth. I am from above, you are from below. You will seek me, but you will not find me. You will die in your sins, for where I'm going, you cannot come. So the TV studio is still quiet, waiting for the host to reply. And she looks at him and she says, couldn't you smile a little bit? And so he said, sure. And he started repeating all those passages with a smile on his face until he was cut off. That's a funny example, but I think it fits with this idea that we can have as Christians that we always need to have a smile on our face. We always maybe have to be hyper careful and walk on eggshells. Um, But it would not do for Walter Martin in speaking to the cults to try to minimize differences between, say, the Mormons and what the Bible teaches it would actually be profoundly unloving if he was not crystal clear because he would have been false. In the same sermon, Mar- uh, Walter Martin says that ex-Mormons used to come up to him and they would say, I used to hate you and then I was born again and now I love you and I love the work that you're doing in the cults. So we have that example from recent history of Walter Martin working in the cults. We see this idea that it kind of makes us uncomfortable when somebody is just kind of upfront and bold right away. And we see this in this interaction between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. I think it's a good reminder for us that at times we must make bold, plain statements of truth like this, like verse 24. No caveats, no qualifying statements. We certainly should speak the truth in love as we're commanded in the Bible. And we need wisdom, we need help from the Spirit to help us know how to do that. And that's why I can say for sure that at times, we will probably need to speak like this. We know that Jesus didn't speak this way to everybody. If we were preaching through John's gospel, we would have seen how he interacted with Nicodemus or the woman at the well. Jesus was not always flipping over tables. So the context is helpful. Jesus is speaking to those who are antagonistic to the truth. This is not the first conversation. They've already rejected him as the Messiah and they've already been twisting his words. And I think maybe some of you in this room have been in a similar situation with your family, maybe even your own kids, with coworkers or friends, where they're antagonistic to the truth, maybe they misrepresent scripture on purpose, they press you, like thinking about hell, like, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God will send people to hell? Do you really believe that only Jesus is the way to be saved? And there's a tendency in those moments for us to kind of give up ground or to step back, or to be softer, maybe minimize things that are actually pretty clear in Scripture. We can take encourage, we can take encouragement from this passage, looking at Jesus, that we should not fall back in those moments. We have no, nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus was in the face of ridicule or being mocked, and he spoke the truth plainly and without fear, knowing that it was going to lead to his death. 
That scenario seems to fit more closely with how we see Jesus interacting here. And some of you may not struggle as much with being reserved. Maybe you struggle with always having the volume turned to 10. And for those of us in the room who fall into that category, the context is just as important. Again, if we were preaching through John, we would have already seen all these other instances of Jesus speaking to other people. The woman at the well, Nicodemus, or in Matthew, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. The message, what Jesus preached, did not change, but how he spoke to people in different contexts sometimes looked a bit different. But in our passage today, we see more of this upfront, bold speech. Jesus interacting with the Jewish leaders. He tells them how it is. You will die in your sins if you do not believe in me. If you continue in this rejection where I am going, you cannot come. And as Walter Martin said, this is the voice of incarnate love. We can be instructed by looking at this interaction. We can also take courage and comfort because it's all true. Jesus is from above. Jesus was going back to the Father. He is the one we must look to and believe in order to have our sins forgiven. And that leads us to consider the teaching of Jesus concerning his identity. The Jews did not respond well to this. We see it in verse 25. They said to him, who are you? This is not some sort of stunned awe, like a, the light bulb moment. They're still angry. Who are you? Jesus responds, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. And he, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been teaching about who he is. He's been trying to tell people about who he is and why he came. He has not been unclear. And thinking about this portion of our sermon today, this is what makes me so excited to preach this passage to you guys. Jesus revealing who he is. This is what gets me excited. This is why I chose this passage. Now, as I say that, you may be confused by what we're going to do next. We're actually going to leave John chapter 8, and we're going to look at a couple statements of Jesus leading up to this chapter. Why are we going to do that? One, I want us to see that Jesus' words in verse 25 are true. He has been speaking about himself from the beginning. The second reason is that it seems as if with each statement, our anticipation and our awe of Jesus just builds and it builds and it builds. It's like they all lead up to something. Right? It's like if you have kids and you tell them something. You just give them good pieces of news and their excitement just keeps going higher and higher. Maybe you say like, hey, your cousins are in town and you get to hang out with them. That's the first level. And then you get to say, and you get to spend the night at the hotel with them. Boom, that's the second level. And then you say something like, I don't know, there's a pool at this hotel. So it just like keeps going up and up and up. I think that's the sort of feeling that we get when we read John's gospel and we lead up here to John chapter eight. So if you have your Bibles, please feel free to turn to these references. Otherwise, I can walk us through it. We're gonna turn back to John chapter one, verse 51. <clears throat> John chapter one, verse 51. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's gathering his disciples. He calls Nathanael, and Nathanael is shocked that Jesus knows about him before they've even met. Jesus responds basically by saying, does that impress you? Just wait, you're gonna see more things. And in verse 51, he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference back to Genesis 28. This is Jacob traveling to see Laban, and he sleeps in an open field at night. And while he's sleeping, he has a vision from God of the heavens being opened, and there's this ladder, as it were, with angels of God going up and coming down. And God tells Jacob, this place is good. This is for you. This is where I am. And so when Jacob awakes, he names the place Bethel, and he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jesus, in referencing this event, is telling Nathanael that it is on himself, the Son of Man, that heaven is opened and that the angels of God are going up and coming down. The big picture, Jesus is the connection point between heaven and earth. It is on him that the angels ascend and descend, that heaven is open. The next one is in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. In another reference to the Old Testament, Jesus brings up the bronze serpent from Numbers 21. In this passage in Numbers 21, the people of Israel sinned. God sent judgment on them in the form of fiery serpents that bit them and they were sick. And so Moses had to create a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up. And when the people of Israel looked at this bronze serpent, they would be healed. They'd come out from under God's judgment. So Jesus, in reference to this, in verse 14, says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as the people in the wilderness had to look to this bronze serpent to be healed, to come out from under God's judgment, so people must also look to Jesus when he's lifted up on the cross, to be forgiven and to move out from under God's judgment. Next, in John 4, verse 26, we see Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, and he clearly says that he is the Messiah. I who speaks to you am he. Now, if those first two statements are kind of obscure, right, reference back to this ladder from heaven, a bronze serpent from Numbers, maybe we're not as familiar with those, the term, the concept of Messiah is not unclear. There's so much wrapped up in the Old Testament. All the hope, all the expectation of this one who would come, who would make things right. Jesus is the connection point between heaven and earth. Jesus lifted up on the cross is the one people must look to. Jesus, he is the Messiah. And there's more. In chapter five, verses 19 through 29, Jesus begins explaining this unique relation he has to the Father. We see that he claims to see all that the Father does. He does all that the Father does. He claims to have received authority to judge from the Father. And this means, in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In fact, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. These are things that no mere human being can say. In verse 26, he claims to have life just as the Father does. You can see why the Jewish people, why the Jewish leaders are getting upset. Flip the page over again to John chapter 6. In verse 35, right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says that he is the bread from heaven. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He just fed 5,000 people. It's good. 
And he's telling them, that bread that you had is good, you're full now, but if you really want to be satisfied, that's going to wear off. You need to come to me. I am the bread come down from heaven. Similarly, in John chapter 7, not with food this time, but with water, in verse 37, Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, and he says, if anybody thirsts, come to me. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. He will satisfy you. Jesus gives water to the thirsty, and you will never need to thirst after the things of the world again. And finally, the last one we're going to look at is in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you go to Jesus, you will come out of the darkness and you will be in the light. So lots of statements, all of these things leading up to our passage this morning. We've seen that Jesus is the connection point between heaven and earth. He's the one who brings about forgiveness of sins. He makes eternal life open to all as he is the Messiah. As the Messiah, he has in some amazing way a relation to the Father that is unique in which he sees all that the Father does. He acts as the Father acts and he is worthy of equal honor. He is able to give life because he himself has it. As such, he can rightly be called the bread from heaven, the one who gives water and satisfies our souls. If we go to him, we will have the light of life, and we will not be in darkness any longer. So with all of that in place, I would argue that what we read in our passage is just as extraordinary, and I think mind-blowing if we think about it. And perhaps we missed it as we read. We've not highlighted it so far. So what am I talking about? Look at verse 24 with me. Verse 24 of John 8. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now if you have the ESV like I have, I just read from, I love it. You notice that it has that little personal pronoun he after the phrase I am. If you have the NASB, if you look down at your Bible, you'll see that it reads this way. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And I think that translation is spot on. In the Greek, there is no personal pronoun there, but simply the phrase ego imi, which means I am. Okay, why would the phrase I am be important? Think back to the Old Testament. Think back to God and Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, what is your name? What should I tell the people? And God responds with this. I am who I am. I am who I am. This is where we get the name Yahweh. In our English Bibles, if you see all caps Lord in the Old Testament, it's most likely a reference to that special name of God, Yahweh. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So if we were to write it in Greek, which people did, how would you sum up the phrase, I am who I am in Greek? Well, you would use the phrase, ego imi, I am. The exact same phrase that Jesus is using here. Jesus is saying, unless you believe that emphasis, I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is more than just a claim to being the Messiah. This is a claim to divinity. 
This is a claim to divinity. Am I making, making too much of that? The Jewish people didn't seem to be bothered by it at the time. Is this actually what Jesus is saying? If we look at verse 58 at the end of John 8, I think we'll see that this is what he's saying. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The exact same phrase. The Jews respond by picking up stones to throw at him. Why? Because the punishment for blasphemy was stoning. So the Jews may not have understood in verse 24, but by the end of John 8, they understand exactly what he's saying when he says, ego imi, I am. So, verse 24 again. Unless you believe, I am, you will die in your sins. What a statement. What a statement. The Jews, by the end of John 8, they understand. They're thinking back to Moses in the burning bush. This is God's special name. When God is in the burning bush and it's just this fire that's just there, it's existing, it's not consuming anything. God is just there. He has life in himself. Jesus is claiming also to have it. He's claiming to be divine. Jesus has been speaking about who he is from the beginning. And here in chapter 8, we have that next level, just this mind-blowing statement. He's crystal clear about who he is. Do you want to have your sins forgiven? Then you need to believe that I am. That is so good. I think that can warm our hearts. Let that warm your heart if you're a believer. You already know it. You believe it. We've sang about Jesus this morning. He is a complete Savior. Jesus is a divine Savior. He is the eternal Son of God. If you know yourself not to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, and you're here this morning, after everything that we've sung about, all the truth, as you're going to see with the Lord's Supper, as we've heard from John's Gospel, my question for you is just why? Why would you not turn to Jesus? If it's all true, which it is, then what is there to gain going apart from Christ? There's nobody else who can deliver us, nobody who can satisfy, nobody else who can bring us into the light. Unless we believe, unless you believe that Jesus is that, that he's the God-man, you will die in your sins. Do not be like the Jewish leaders at the end of verse 59 who pick up stones to throw. Be instead like those in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The majority of the Jewish leaders did not understand, and they continued in their rejection. We see their misunderstanding in verse 27. They don't know that he's been speaking to them about the Father when he talks about being sent. It's not going to be after, or sorry, until the Son of Man has been lifted up that his words will be proved true. We see this in verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do not speak on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. To put it another way, Jesus says that when this is over, then you will know. It will be proved true. You will know that I am. You will know that all I have done, all I ever do, is exactly in line with what the Father has given me to do. It is through the lifting up of Jesus, the Son of Man, through his death, burial, resurrection, through his ascension back into heaven, that that is the ultimate validation of all that he said and he did. All of Jesus' works, all of Jesus' words are proved true through this event. So on this side of the cross, right, 2,000 years after the cross, 
we have even more validation. We have even more assurance and confidence that what Jesus says in John 8 is true. We have no doubts. We should have no doubts. Again, we can take comfort in this. Jesus was proved true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Another statement from John. We should never think that our Savior is somehow incomplete or unable or unwilling to lead us along in this life. He is the one that we look to. So we see Jesus' example interacting with these Jewish leaders. We've heard the teaching about Jesus concerning his identity. And now we're going to end by meditating briefly on verse 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is another verse that is so rich, has so many implications for us as believers. Jesus is the one who always did the things that were pleasing to the Father. Always. He spoke just as he was taught. We see the verse before. And I assume the majority of you here are believers and that you do have a desire to please your Heavenly Father. And I would assume that by the power of the Spirit, you are advancing in holiness and you're going along towards that goal. And I know because of my own experience that we do not always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. There's the difficulty of battling our own sin, the deceitfulness of our own heart, of falling short of the glory of God and missing the mark, choosing sin even though we know who Jesus is and what he said. But Jesus... He is the perfect one. He's the one who always did the things that were pleasing to the Father. He's the one who came on our behalf. He fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. He made the atonement that our sin required on the cross. He rose from the grave. And how can that become ours? How can we be made righteous? How can we be made right with God? We need to look to Christ. It is simply through faith in him. Believing who he is and what he has said, believing in his perfect life and his death on our behalf, casting all of our hope, all of our trust on Jesus alone. Now I can be made right with God. Now I can be righteous in his sight because of Christ. Now I can go where Christ goes. And there's so much more that could be said about this verse, but I know that we only have a half an hour, but the Lord's Supper that we're gonna take next is basically a sermon in itself, And it points us to Jesus. So we're going to end it here. Jesus, the perfect son of God, always doing the things that are pleasing to the Father. He speaks truly. He judges righteously in his dealing with the Jewish leaders. We've seen who he is. He is the God-man. He's the one who satisfies. He's the one who can deliver us. It is only through faith in this Jesus that we have hope. So let's praise the Lord and thank him for his son together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for this salvation that you've provided that's been brought about, it's been accomplished by the work of your son. Thank you, Lord, that that can be ours. Thank you that you give us the spirit who applies this to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to look to Christ Would our expectation, our assurance, our hope of Jesus be ever stronger? Would you help us, Lord, to have our hearts encouraged and strengthened by looking at Jesus' example? 
Father, we have no need to be ashamed or afraid of speaking the truth. Lord, would you help us to be bold? Would you help us to speak the truth in love? I pray that you'd help us to look to Jesus. Lord, help us to look to Jesus. I ask it in Christ's name, amen.